When I was a child, my father used to get out a planisphere, a kind of round star chart that you could spin to reflect the sky where you lived, and you could match the constellations to what you could see above you. What do kids do who are passionate about astronomy but can't see very well? Nick Bond's family found ways to help him understand the stars when he was a child, and now he's one of the few vision-impaired astronomers in the world. He's at the University of Portsmouth in the UK, and he's been looking at new ways of studying the universe, and one of them is through sound. Take a listen to this. That was amazing. Dr. Nick Bond, welcome to Life Matters. Hi, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. What were we hearing there? Um, So that's actually a sonification of the sound of the stars appearing in the night sky as the sun goes down, as the sky gets darker. Um, What you're hearing in each of those noises, um, so if it's a louder sound, it's a brighter star. If it's a softer sound, it's a dimmer star. If it's a high-pitched sound, it's a blue star. If it's a low-pitched sound, it's a red star. And so there's a lot of data sort of encoded in all of those noises. Um, and yeah, it's it's sort of, it's simulating what your eyes would see um, as they adjust to the, the night sky, as the sun goes down, as the sky gets darker, um, all of that stuff. It's a really interesting way to, uh, I was going to say visualise, but think about experience the night sky because it sounds like twinkling. It does. It does. And um, so my colleague who created that sound was very deliberate in, I guess, the choice of instrument he used uh, to play those sounds as well. Because, yeah, we did want something that sort of sounded like a, a twinkle or a tinkling sort of noise. Are there other ways to do data sonification? Um, there are there are lots and lots of different ways. Um it sort of it depends on the data that you're dealing with. Um, we, there's obviously a lot of things in sound that we can use. We can use pitch. We can use loudness. We can use timbre, so the, the way a sound sounds. You can use hard sounds. You can use soft sounds. You can use uh, sort of synthetic, um, like spacey sounds. You can use things that sound like instruments. Yeah, there's a lot of scope to what you can do, um, depending on what you're trying to communicate and how nice you want stuff to sound as well. Well, yeah, I mean, it sounds like a beautiful thing to play at a conference and a way to kind of get an intuitive understanding of of some aspects of astronomy out there. How would you use a data sonification piece like that, Nick? Is it something that you could use as a teaching tool? Yeah, so um, again, my colleagues do do use this as a teaching tool sometimes. So we uh, we go and we talk to students, we uh, describe things like the stars appearing, and then we play that sound as a way of sort of contextualising that. Um, it's also part of a, a planetarium show that we've created called the uh, the Audio Universe Tour of the Solar System, and so that that's a show that has a lot of sonification built into it. It's got visuals as well, so if if students or the people attending can see a little bit, they can appreciate that. But everything's also underpinned by by sounds. So there's there's stuff like that. But then there's also, I guess, sonic representations of of systems in motion. So things like the solar system, where the listener is at the center of that, and you can hear the planets sort of moving around you as part of the planetarium experience. I guess a lot of people would think of astronomy primarily as a visual science. So how much of a stretch is it to for us to start thinking of uh, of it as involving other senses? 
Um, yeah, like you say, I mean, astronomy has for a very, very long time been a really visual science. The, the way we talk about astronomy, the kinds of language we use, um, the kinds of things we lean into to communicate astronomy, to educate people, but even even to sort of do our research, we, yeah, we rely really, really heavily on the visuals. Um, it's sort of a growing field at the moment where more and more people are starting to think about sonification, I guess, as an alternative way of, of accessing that information, be that for, for education or for, for research. Um, it is taking a little bit of a a little bit of work. Um, some astronomers definitely still see it as as more of a gimmick than something that's probably going to be useful. Um, so there's a little bit of work to be done there. Um, but it's interesting, yeah, but isn't it? Because I, I guess you know we we think of it as about telescopes. But you've written that you know we use lots of instruments to find out information about the stars, and some of them are not at all visual. That's it exactly. So I mean, the, the bits of the universe we can actually see are really tiny compared to everything else. I mean, we we deal with data uh, in wavelengths outside what our eyes can actually see. We, we look at data in X-ray and radio in ultraviolet and infrared, all of these other wavelengths of light that are beyond what we can actually see. And oftentimes the way we collect that data is actually quite abstract, but then we still insist on turning it into visuals that we, we then try and interpret. So I think in some cases, actually turning that data into sound is going to be possibly even more intuitive. It's going to be easier to actually work out what's going on. And there'll definitely be cases where we'll be able to work stuff out a lot faster using sound than we would just by, by doing things in the more traditional visual way. Really? It sounds like it's, it's been a bit of a, a mindset change for some of the scientists that you've encountered. Yeah, definitely. I mean, again, it's it's a it's a slow process. It's a bit of a cultural shift in terms of how people think about this stuff. Um, but yeah, there's yeah, there are quite a few people now who are starting to do really really good work um, to do with sort of sonification. Tell us a bit more about how you got to this place, Dr. Nick Bond, because you're in the UK now, but you grew up in Australia in Bendigo in Central Victoria. Tell us how your interest I, in I astronomy did. started. Um, so from a pretty young age, um, so obviously living in Bendigo, um, pretty easy to get out sort of beyond a really, really dark, clear night skies. And so with my family, with my my parents, my brothers, um, we'd often just go out and sort of spend time in the dark. <laughs> and I mean, I can see a tiny bit. So I'd sort of, I'd try to see what I could and what I couldn't see my parents and my brothers would sort of describe to me. They'd help me sort of interpret what I was seeing, what I couldn't see. Um, but then I think, I mean, just those conversations, those shared experiences really got me thinking about space and just how, how big everything is, how far apart everything is. Um, but also just all that stuff that we didn't have answers for yet, all that stuff that astronomers were still trying to study, still trying to understand. Um, and so, yeah, from a really, really young age, I was just hooked on space, just the idea of space and everything to do with space. Well, and I'm intrigued at the ways that your parents found to describe things to you. Were they focusing more on the aesthetics of it or were they veering into the science as well? Um, it depended on what, what they knew. Um, so sometimes we sort of got beyond what they knew and we might have to go away and find a book and read up and some stuff. And, um, but yeah, oftentimes they, yeah, they would sort of talk to me about, about what they were feeling or what they were experiencing um, or they'd sort of try to help me pinpoint stuff. If it was something particularly bright, say a really bright star or the full moon or something like that, they'd sort of help direct me so I could sort of find that myself. And Nick, when you decided that you wanted to study astronomy, what kind of hurdles did you have to overcome? Um, quite quite a bit, to be honest. Um, so, I mean, a lot of science, um, 
sort of all the way through high school to sort of university is still very, very visual, um, sort of sitting in labs doing experiments. Um, a lot of the time it was sort of working out what I could do safely on my own versus what I might need a little bit of help with, um, what I just needed to sit back and learn the theory about but not actually do myself because it was sort of going to be going to be too difficult. And I think, again, I was lucky that I had teachers who were willing to sort of spend the time talking to me and spending that extra time making sure I, I understood stuff or that we could find a workaround, find a different way of doing things that would sort of work for me so that I still learned what I, what I needed to learn. Well, then in your work now, Nick, how much of it is about, okay, I can just do this maths using the tools that I use to, to do my work, and how much of it is about finding ways around the uh, vision-centred uh, modes that a lot of other astronomers are working in? Yeah, so I mean, definitely during my PhD, while I was doing sort of a little bit more research than I am nowadays, um, I did... Um, well, it was sort of a funny story. I, I originally made plots and graphs the same way that everybody else did. So lots of tiny text, not particularly easy to see. Um, and it actually took one of my professors sort of turning around and going, but Nick, can you actually see these plots that you're making? And I sort of said, well, no, I can't. He said, well, why don't you make the text bigger? Why don't you choose colours that are better for you? And so throughout my, my PhD, I actually sort of developed my own, I guess, style of making plots. It was a little bit unconventional, um, but I ended up making things that were probably easier for a lot of people to see, to be perfectly honest. Isn't that um, always the way you find that, that accessibility changes can be much more broadly useful than you originally thought? I'd say that's almost always the case. Um, I think if you start out trying to make something accessible for a particular audience, even if that's a really small audience, you, you almost always make something better for, for everybody in the, in the process. So um, how do you go um, at places like conferences, for example, Nick? How are astronomers doing more broadly when it comes to the ways that they present their findings? Um, a lot of people still aren't doing a great job, to be honest. Um, still a lot of visuals. Um, a lot of astronomers, well, just, I mean, this is true of, I think, any sort of conference environment. People just assuming that you can see what's going on on the screen and sort of talking about stuff without really describing it a lot of the time, um, which can be a little bit frustrating. Um, if I have energy, I tend to be a bit more vocal about that type of stuff, and I, I call people out as politely as I can. Um, so if they're talking about a plot and they're not describing it, I'll sort of put my hand up and say, "Well, what is the plot actually showing us? What are you What are you talking about?" Um, but but that does use up a lot of energy. Um, sometimes I just sort of have to sit back and listen, and yeah, try to get as much information as I can, even if if people aren't necessarily doing a great job of, um, yeah, I guess being accessible in the way they're presenting stuff. We're speaking with Dr Nick Bond, who's a vision-impaired astronomer working at the University of Portsmouth. He leads the Tactile Universe Public Engagement Project, and you've been hearing about different ways to present information in this field. We heard a data sonification example before. Nick, I understand you've also been looking at uh, and developing tactile models that people can feel. Tell us a bit about them. Yeah, so um, this actually so started quite soon after I finished my PhD. I just moved to, to the UK and I was doing a short research project. And I was, again, talking to my, my professor who was sort of managing me at that time. And she sort of said, well, what could you have done in your PhD work that would have made things a bit more accessible for you? And so during my PhD, I studied galaxies. So these big collections of gas and dust and stars that are sort of all over the universe. Um, we live inside the Milky Way, which is a galaxy. Um, I looked at 
sort of thousands and thousands of images of galaxies and I had to sort of assess what kinds of shapes they were, what kinds of features they had, what, what sort of colors they were, all this really visual stuff. And I had data to sort of tell me this, but I had to look at the images to make sure that they were that they were right, that the data was actually correct and that it was telling me the right things about the, these images. Um, and so, yeah, if I sort of thought back and I was like, well, if I could have touched those instead of looking at them, that would have made things so much easier. Um, it just so happened that another colleague um, who had some experience making 3D models um, overheard that conversation. And so he went away. Um, he made a tactile surface that represented um, the a particular galaxy image. He found somebody with a 3D printer and he 3D printed that. He brought it back to me and he said, Nick, is this what you were talking about? And yeah, it was exactly what I'd, what I'd imagined. Wow. Um, and so, yeah, there's... These 3D models that we make, basically, uh, they take the brightness of, of the image and they turn it into a, a tactile feature. So the brighter the, the part of the image, the higher the tactile feature is, the lower the brightness, the, I guess, less tactile. Um, so you can sort of run your fingers across the surface. You can get a sense of the shapes of these things, which bits are bright, which bits are dim, all that stuff that your eyes would tell you, but you can do it with your fingertips instead. I love that some of the uh, the images I saw associated with this, there was one early model, which was a plasticine uh, representation of the Milky Way with its spiral arms uh, stuck onto a CD. <laughs> and that was like, oh, I can mm. see, yes, now I can see the, the different uh, uh, heights of the things showing the brightness. And then the, the 3D printed model, which had so much more detail. What was it like for you, Nick, the first time you touched this thing? Um, it definitely really helped me contextualise what was going on so i mean I, I had a pretty good sense of of i guess the features of that particular galaxy so the, the galaxy in question i think was messier 51 it's called the whirlpool galaxy um it's a beautiful spiral galaxy sort of a similar shape to our milky way um but the hubble space telescope has taken just some some ridiculously detailed images of this thing um definitely worth looking up if, if anyone has the time and so I, I knew all this stuff. I knew that it had spiral arms. I knew it had a bright core. I knew it had a little galaxy companion off to the side that was having all of its gas and stars and dust stripped away. Um, but actually feeling that shape really, yeah, really, really helped me, I guess, almost for the first time, understand exactly what that shape was and which features popped out and, yeah, just all of that detail. Well, it's wonderful to hear about some of the advancements that are being made in representing things for people with vision impaired people who are working as scientists in this field. Nick, thank you so much for, for sharing what you've been up to with us today. Oh, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's mutual. Dr Nick Bond is a vision impaired astronomer working at the University of Portsmouth. He leads the Tactile Universe Public Engagement Project. and You can find out a bit more about that online. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.